Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Are You Foiping Serious edition? My name is Sarah O'Donnell. It's Thursday, April 24th, and joining me in the newsroom studio today are columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Provincial affairs reporter Karen Cleese. Hi there. And legislature columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. With the legislature sitting, things are busy in Alberta politics as always. Today, we want to weigh in on a couple of key issues that I know reporters in our newsroom are passionate about. The first is Bill 11, which introduces changes to Alberta's child welfare legislation. We also want to talk about why the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act was front and center in question period. Then there's the pension reform bill that is very close to passing, and I want to know where that stands. Let's start with the Freedom of Information controversy. In Alberta, there is a piece of legislation, as I mentioned, that's known as the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act, which we all refer to as the FOIP laws. So now that I've explained the acronym, can you, Karen and Graham, kind of explain why the PCs were being grilled over it this week? This is not a new piece of legislation. So last week we heard from the Liberals that the highest ranking civil servants in the province were collecting FOIPs from all the ministries and in some cases directing how those ministries actually released information to the requesters. This week we heard from the Wild Rose that the highest ranking politicians in the province were directing or attempting to direct some of the uh, FOIP requests that were happening in the province. They released a memo which was leaked to them uh, from uh, former Deputy Premier Thomas Lukasik asking all of the uh, all of the press secretaries which are politicized people to collect information about FOIPs. Then under questioning in the legislature Lukasik released a memo from Privacy Commissioner Jill Clayton. Now that was ostensibly going to show that she was behind this move that he was making, but it had the opposite effect to a lot of people who read it and showed that she was not in support of it. So that's that's basically what happened. Is it really a surprise, Graham, to hear that there's some political interest in the release of information that's being requested under freedom of information laws? Well, you know, on the one hand, the government's arguing, look, it makes sense. It does make sense that if there's a FOIP request has gone in and there'll be information released to the public that the ministers then should be told what's actually happening. Then they could answer questions from reporters in the opposition intelligently about what's actually being released. The problem is um, this government has a history of interfering and mucking around with FOIP. It goes back. Uh, Klein brought this in, uh, Premier Klein did 20 years ago as a way to try and silence some critics. But Klein never really liked the FOIP uh, process. In fact, he would stop me in the hallway sometimes and say, Grandma, I hear you're foiping us again. So when we did a FOIP, he actually was told we were doing a FOIP. I put a FOIP into the health department uh, and then get a call from Gary Marr, the minister of health at the time, saying, I hear you're doing a FOIP, Graham. Can I help you with this? Uh, and so this government's always had his hand in the FOIP process to me in, improperly. And so what's happened in the last uh, few years, reporters and the opposition have become a lot more adept at getting information out of FOIP using a lot more FOIPs. To me, this is a way of the government then trying to get its hand back into the system, saying people are using FOIP, they're actually getting information now, so let's try and coordinate this. And it does, on the one hand, you can argue it's important for them to know what's actually going on uh, in their, uh, their own government for the information being released. At the same time, though, to me, it smells, it, it sounds, it smells like they're trying to interfere in the process to try and spin it or to try and uh, keep a lid on some of the information being released. What are the actual rules? Is there supposed to be some kind of wall between politicians and the people actually rooting through the paperwork to find the information requested? Well, yes, and, and this is the problem, I and mean, it speaks to the way that we have so politicized the public service in this province that 
what seems normal in Alberta is not normal anywhere else in the Commonwealth. The way this is supposed to work is you're supposed to make an application to a FOIP officer who is sort of an arm's length person from the department. And they are supposed to be your intervener who goes and gets the information that you've requested. The department is allowed to to know about this because the department has to provide the information and the department has, you know, says, well, you know, this has to be recused, this has to be private, but it is supposed to be an apolitical process that you go through with a FOIP administrator. But as Graham says, I mean, when I saw this story breaking on Twitter, I laughed because I said it reminds me of, you know, the 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 Vichy uh, Captain Louis Renault in Casablanca, who is shocked, shocked to find that there is gambling going on in the back of Rick's casino. I mean, of course, we've always known that they interfered. I mean, my favorite FOIP story, I filed a FOIP request once with Alberta Infrastructure. It was pretty straightforward. And I got a phone call from a source saying, everybody here is laughing at you because you didn't ask, like you didn't say the one open sesame word that would give you what you actually want. And so I quickly called and said, oh, I just wanted to clarify my request. So, I mean, there's no doubt that this is a game that that, that the government plays with politicians. But I think what was particularly egregious this week was when Thomas Lukasik tried to make it sound as though Jill Clayton, the Information and Privacy Commissioner, had signed off on his fabulous new policy. And they hand out this letter in which Jill Clayton says... Here are all the reasons why this policy is not a good idea and why it could lead to problems and what you should do to avoid those problems. That is not a letter of endorsement from the Privacy Commissioner. That is a letter from the Privacy Commissioner saying, I don't think that's such a great idea. I think we need to contextualize this a little bit too. So our fatal care series, which we'll talk about in a minute, broke on the Monday. And by Wednesday, uh, Deputy Minister, Deputy Premier Thomas Lukasik was on the phone with the Privacy Commissioner trying to establish a new process for managing high-profile FOIPs, specifically from media and opposition parties. What they wanted to do was control the release of this information. Now, the the Premier said yesterday, denied completely that it had anything to do with the Fatal Care series, but <laughs> I mean, it is laughable. Um, by Friday, they had implemented this new process. So A, there's that. I think the other thing that's really important to notice here is that Paul and Graham and I, and anybody in journalism or in politics will know that the FOIP process is heavily, heavily politicized, that they mess with your FOIPs all the time. Um, But what we had this week that we've never seen before is documented proof. And it reaches right up into the premier's office. This was not just a memo sent among civil servants. This was not just some backroom chatter or phone call from someone inside the system like Paula got saying, you know, they're messing with your request. This was a documented memo from the deputy premier to the premier saying we are instituting a politicized process to meddle in FOIP requests, and that is unprecedented. Somebody should FOIP the response to the FOIP <laughs> controversy this week within <laughs> government. To me, this also t- ties into leadership. You know, you're going to wonder about uh, Lukasik's uh, chances if he's interested in becoming a leader for a couple of reasons. One is this is a bit of a scandal. It may be inside baseball to us, but it still does not, does not look good on him. This is very much the old school way of doing things. A- and second of all, you got to question his judgment. I think Paul is right. When he puts that letter out from Jill Clayton saying this is actually um, her endorsing me, says um, 
the Catholic, you're thinking, no, it doesn't at all. So either you're misreading this or you're trying to foist one on people. You don't really understand this issue. It does not look good on the Catholic on many different levels. You don't think it just shows he's a glass half full kind of guy? <laughs> well, I, I think it I think it does speak to a really dysfunctional relationship between uh, senior members of government and Jill Clayton, the privacy commissioner. I mean, uh, you know, Fred Horn took a big run at her a couple of times earlier this year. And now we see Luke Kazakh, you know, trying to make out as though he has her endorsement for what is clearly a very problematic new policy. So, you know, Jill Clayton is an independent officer of the legislature. And so to put her in a position like this, making it look like she's endorsing something that she's clearly not, if you read the text of the letter, is a bit bizarre. You mentioned, Paula, that you think nowhere else in the Commonwealth is like this. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I'm not sure the federal conservatives are any less... uh, influential in the federal FOIA process. I don't know that for a fact. I'm just saying, I I have a feeling that Alberta is not the only government no, I mean, that interferes with the FOIA there, there, process. There's no gover- there is no government in the world that loves privacy, you know, access to information legislation, because access to information legislation inevitably exposes flaws and mistakes that a government has made. What I meant wasn't so much that Alberta is the only jurisdiction that meddles. What I meant is that after 40 years of one-party rule, we have created a public service that is so intertwined with the party and the government that I mean, as I've said before, we haven't just blurred the lines. I mean, it's a Robin Thicke song around here. <laughs> oh, oh the, the images. <laughs> do, do, does this show that there need to be changes to FOIP laws? Have, have any of the parties actually suggested, because of this, we need to make actual changes? We haven't seen any calls for changes. Well, the thing is, the law itself is not a bad law. Like, if it's actually, if they actually would adhere to the law the way it stands right now and not get themselves mucking around with it, it would be okay. But they, they do. And speaking of the federal government and FOIP, I've actually had more luck with the federal government getting information out of them than Alberta. It's even small things like the flight logs. You go back a decade ago, um, the FOIP, because Karen's involved in that, doing the FOIP to try and get the access to the government's flight logs. Whereas the federal government, you give them like a couple of bucks and they'll give you the last like decade of flight logs for every flight they've ever done. Um, they've always been a lot more open than Alberta. I think the biggest flaw with the system as it stands right now is not the legislation. Uh, and all of the opposition parties yesterday when I asked said, you know, we have a, an adequate oversight oversight process in place. The problem is that um, Jill Clayton's office is dramatically underfunded. If you uh, put in an access to information request, you they have 30, 60 days to respond to you. If you don't like what they give you, you have the right to appeal to the commissioner's office. At this point, they are booking those appeals two years, three years in advance. I mean, you are waiting. That's why fatal care took four years, because the negotiation process and then we waiting for Jill Clayton's office to answer was a four-year process. That is not a problem with the law. That is a problem with staffing in her office. So, and, and that's what we heard from the opposition parties last week. A bill came to the legislature this week that is in many ways connected to the FOIP requests that the government wants to be alerted to. A Bill 11 introduces changes to Alberta's Child, Youth, and Family Enhancement Act, and it comes after your work, Karen, with Darcy Henton, that started with your simple request four years ago, just how many children have died while under the care of the child of the child welfare system. As we've talked about before on this show, the journal fought this four-year FOIP battle for these records, which made it clear that the province had dramatically underreported the number of children who died in the last nine years. So, Karen, can you quickly, if possible, recap how we got to this point where Bill 11 was introduced. 
So Bill 11 is in many ways a response to the Fatal Care series. Uh, it was work done by the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal, Darcy Hinton uh, and myself. We, uh, we did a, a six-part series called Fatal Care that basically exposed some of the flaws inside Alberta's child welfare system, most notably the fact that they had underreported uh, the number of deaths. They, they had reported, I think, 56, and we found 145 children had died. Uh, but then we also um, took a really critical look at the publication ban that was in place, which prevented uh, us from naming kids who had died in care. Uh, and and effectively through a shroud of secrecy over the entire system, uh, and then also uh, a fairly in-depth look at precisely how we do and conduct child death reviews in Alberta. So uh, we'll talk in a minute about how the law responds to those major yeah. things. What does it do in broad strokes then? Well, it, it, does, it does a couple of different things. And Manmeet Bolar, the new Minister of Human Services, made it very plain in his press conference. He said, you know, this is not the complete revision. I didn't want to wait until I had a perfect law. We're going to keep revising. So this is sort of the first round of revisions. And some of them are not bad. What are they? So the Child and Youth Advocate has new expanded powers to investigate uh, the deaths and serious injuries of children who die in care or while receiving protective services, including the right to investigate a death that happens up to two years after a child has left the system. So a child um, is adopted, a child uh, is lost track of, a child is returned to their parents. Um, this would give the child advocate the chance to say, if that child dies, especially a wrongful death, that he can still get learnings from it. Okay. It will require, and I know this sounds crazy, it will actually require the government to tell you how many children died in a year or sustained serious injuries. Shocking. Uh, shocking. Um, and it will sort of, kind of, lift the publication ban. But uh, as I ranted about at some length in my column today, it doesn't exactly lift the publication ban. It sort of, you know, it takes the blankets off and shakes them. Another really important change to the legislation is that there are protections in place now for folks who are contributing to investigations that are conducted under the Act. So there are a number of different kinds of investigations that can take place. They're called quality assurance activities. Um, but if you, say, are a frontline social worker and you have been caring for a child who's died uh, in care, um, and you speak candidly and frankly to the investigators who are trying to understand what happened in the days and months leading up to the child's death, you are protected from any kind of legal action, from any kind of criminal charge, from any kind of civil charge. Um, what you tell the investigators cannot be used against you. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it sends a very clear signal from the minister to the staff within the ministry that uh, he wants to create conditions of openness within the ministry so that there's they're not wanting to as ascribe blame. They're wanting to get to the bottom of it and find out what went wrong so they can fix it. Uh, number two, it, it, it protects the people. Um, and I think that's important, right? So it, it sends a very strong legal message that they are protected. So I, I think that that's an important step forward from a quality assurance perspective. It's, I say overall, it seems that it's actually a step in the right direction. That's a cliche, I know, but it seems that um, it's a couple of steps in the right direction. People are thinking that Manny Buller actually is sincere about making the system better. He's brought in some some, some actual um, improvements. Um, how it plays out, we'll wait and see. But but this government, it's always like two steps ahead, one step back. Oh, yes. Where, big, big I'm sorry. Back. And what happens where, you know, they, they may give more powers to the child and youth advocate, but again, the money isn't there to follow up. And that's an issue that's been, we've discussed it with the privacy commissioner. You name an agent of the, um, of the assembly, and odds are they have some pretty good powers, but the government makes sure that their, their money they get is usually less than they actually need to do their job properly. Right. So two steps forward and one step back is still one step forward. But Paula, can you briefly 
tell me why (laughs) you are really not happy with the publication ban issue. I know you feel strongly about it. So, All right. So what listeners need to understand is that Alberta is an outlier in North America. We have the most bizarre and draconian legislation around the reporting of the deaths of children in care. Nowhere else in North America has a law that makes it uh, an offense for which a journalist can be fined or even go to jail for reporting accurately and truthfully on the circumstances surrounding the death of a child who is receiving protective services. And you're describing the bill as it sits now before amendment? Uh, uh, The law as it sits now. So the amendment would get rid of the blanket publication ban. That is good. Very good. Here is the problem. It would also give the Crown the right to go for an ex parte secret order to a judge to impose a publication ban to which the media and the parents of the child would have no advance notice and no right to challenge that ban when it's granted. After the ban is granted, assuming that it is, and the grounds to grant it would be that it's in the best interests of the surviving siblings of the dead child or because it's what the dead child would have wanted. Um, because so many 18-month-olds express their feelings about this, Uh, then and only then the media would have the right to challenge the ban after the fact. But the family would be stripped of any right to challenge the ban whatsoever. And the government says, oh, but they're giving the families more rights because the family would be able to speak privately about their child's death. A family would now, it would not be a crime to tweet or have a Facebook blog about a child's death. But the families will still be prevented from having their stories told in the paper with their names and photographs attached. And the families lose whatever right they currently have under the law to appeal. So in fact, Families arguably have fewer rights to have their children's stories told. Uh, The media has maybe more rights in some circumstances, but not others. What's also problematic is that uh, the Crown can ask for a publication ban. The family members can ask for a publication ban. So if one family member wants one and another one doesn't, they can be at odds. And also, and this is something that Karen has pointed out to me in specific, third parties can now request publication bans. So say you have a situation where a First Nation has delegated authority to run its own child welfare system. A child dies. The band is embarrassed. The band council can go and seek an ex parte secret publication ban to which the parents have no notification and no right of appeal. So I guess what we'll do is we will watch and see how the opposition, what they think about this, if they suggest any amendments. And I guess we'll find out how open the minister is to potential amendments. Now, as Bill 11 begins to work its way through the legislature, another bill, very controversial, changing portions of civil service pensions, is nearing the end of its journey. Graham, can you quickly give us an update on where this pensions bill sits? Uh, quickly, I'll try and do it quickly. Uh, this is the government saying, look, we've got a $7 billion unfunded pension liability when it comes to public sector pensions. We're, we're in deep trouble. Unions say, no, we don't. This will sort itself out. The government's saying, no, it won't. And so it's brought in a bill to actually um, change the, the, the pension benefits. So in other words, uh, it'd be more difficult for public sector pensions um, to actually have people retire early. They'll be penalized if they retire early. Um, they will be forced perhaps to work longer and get fewer benefits. Union is saying this is completely unfair and the pensions will work themselves out. Interesting uh, wrinkle though is the Wild Rose's response to this. For right. some time, the Wild Rose <laughs> has been sort of on the side of the government, very sympathetic to the fact they're gonna you know, cut costs and make these things sustainable. Last week, 
while Roe stood up and said, we're with the union, we're with the AUPE, mm-hmm. um, it's saying at the very least the government should negotiate, it shouldn't impose, it should actually respect its workers. And I thought it was a really interesting 180-degree turn by the Wild Rose, which is trying to make itself more moderate to all kinds of people on many issues. And essentially, I mean, Daniel Smith said that the government has so poisoned labor relations, not just with the pensions bill, but with bills 45 and 46. You know, the implication of what she's saying is that when she is premier and needs to negotiate substantive changes, she's not going to be able to do so because everything is going to be so poisoned. It's a fascinating way of spinning things. But, you know, it just speaks to the fact there may well be a public policy need for pension reform to keep pensions sustainable as the population ages and as we have a demographic bubble. But that should have been done in collaboration with the unions. I mean, you need to, if you're going to make major changes to the pension plans, you need to get the unions on side and say, look, we need to make this sustainable, not just for your members today, but for your members 20 years from now. That can be done. That can be finessed. This government, not so good with the finesse. Let's just move to good stuff from the gallery then. We've had a lot of serious topics to talk about. Graham, did you bring us something serious? Um, And of course, good stuff from the gallery is our weekly recommendations for an interesting political read, listen, or uh, watch. Yeah, quickly, it's um, New Yorker. It's the April 14th edition of Mm -hmm. New Yorker. He's got it with him, folks. little picture here. This is um, an article. It's called Crossing Christie. Uh, what the bridge scandal says about governor pl- governor's political style and his future. This is about the um, governor of New Jersey, uh, Chris Christie, who was at one time p- potentially a very viable um, candidate for the presidency for the Republicans, um, and how it's going over a cliff for him because of this traffic incident, which we won't get into. But this is a very interesting article about his background. It's, and just, it's a great read. I, and what it actually says about him as a politician. And, uh, to me, the, the subtext is this guy is toast. I love the Bridgegate story, so I'm very glad you recommended that. Um, I'm going to recommend something that is actually more up the Graham Thompson alley. It's something from National Geographic. It's called uh, Can Coal Ever Be Clean? It's a really interesting article about coal and uh, its impact on the climate. And it's 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 the, one of their... It's not their cover story this week. The cover story is about exotic pets, but this is probably the most serious and interesting of the articles in National Geographic this week. So uh, it talks about how it's the dirtiest of fossil fuels. The world burns 8 billion tons of it a year with growing consequences, and the world must face a question. And it's interesting, of course, for Alberta because we do burn a lot of coal in our power plants. So I highly recommend this read and in what, National Geographic. Is there an answer to the question? Um. Yeah. Well, I think we have to get rid of coal. That's a little <laughs> Yeah, I think the true. answer is no. I think the answer is, yeah, the, that's right. Is the, Yes, you're right. That is their answer. You're going to spoil it. Now they're not going to read it. I had a great editor once who said to me, anytime you see a headline that ends in a question, the answer is no. Yes. All right. Paula, what's your good stuff? All right. My good stuff is quite different. It's a really great, funny, yet awful piece from the Ottawa Citizen by their science writer, Tom Spear. What he did was he forged a fake research paper. He went online oh, right. and he took yeah. little bits of from papers on soil science and papers on medical stuff, cancer research, and he smooshed it all together into an, a complete work of sort of Lewis Carroll nonsense so, so that a sentence starts off talking about soil science and morphs into talking about something completely different. And then he submitted it to a bunch of scientific sounding journals and found that people raced for the opportunity to publish his groundbreaking work from his imaginary University of Ottawa Carleton. Um, and so it's a it's a really funny but disturbing expose about 
a kind of vanity publishing in the scientific world. This isn't just a question of your Aunt Bertha publishing her memoirs and selling them at the farmer's market. These are people who look like they're publishing real scientific work in real scientific journals, the kind of thing that gets you, uh, uh, you know, it, promotion at the university, but that there's a whole industry of people who are paying to have bad research published in really bad journals. But the great thing about this piece is that it's so extremely funny. Uh, you know, in, in Tom's description of the article that he cobbled together from bits of crap that he plagiarized online, uh, and, and the people who were just gleeful to publish it without any understanding of the gobbledygook he'd produced. And but, even when he admitted it's just plagiarized, they still said, fine, give us more money and we'll, we'll still publish it. And That's so, awesome. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's not really a political piece, except that it speaks to a really important thing, because so many of our public policy decisions, whether it's on climate change or endangered species or where we put our medical research dollars, hinges on the reliability of scientific research. And if you can't trust uh, academics and academic journals, it really begs really important questions about the social contract on which we base our public policy decisions. I like that you still believe that our public policy is actually rooted in science. I, I like that. <laughs> I told you I'm crazy optimistic today. It stopped raining. That's right. And Karen, good Just stuff? Really, really briefly, uh, Dying for a Drink, CBC, fantastic multi-part series about uh, regulation of water in Peru and Canada's uh, involvement in that. So a really great read, and I'm sure you'll link to it at the bottom of the... I will. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. You can find all previous episodes of The Press Gallery on edmontonjournal.com and on iTunes. Just search The Press Gallery and you'll find it. And please subscribe on iTunes and review us. We also live on SoundCloud and you can talk to us on our Facebook page. I should look so cute. I should know this by now. Facebook.com slash The Press Gallery. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.